Try My Best Practice, the evidence-based electronic health record system created by therapists for therapists. With responsive customer support and a comprehensive how-to library of step-by-step -step screenshots, it's no wonder My Best Practice has five stars on Google, Trustpilot, Captera, and Software Advice outranking other EHRs. My Best Practice was the first EHR choosing therapy awarded five out of five stars for its excellence. And Captera awarded My Best Practice this year's Emerging Favor EHR. My Best Practice makes evidence-based care seamless with scheduled auto-scored and automatically charted routine outcome measures, customizable interventions, symptom checklist, and an easy-to-use note system for evidence-based therapies. Having an EHR you could trust is a game-changer for running a successful, stress-free practice. If you are an evidence-based therapist, My Best Practice is your EHR. Try My Best Practice free for 14 days. Get an additional three months free by using mbpractice.com sanity. Use that link today and see why everyone who switches loves it. The link can be found in our show notes. So many people are looking to live happier, more stress-free lives. We provide interviews from mental health experts across various fields because you know finding quality information isn't always easy. Let's find more sanity together. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sanity ABCT collaboration series. We have a very cool episode, um, something I'm highly interested in and I don't know all that much about, which is uh, psychedelic assisted treatment and therapy. Uh, we have two experts in this field here um, and I'm going to introduce them right now. We have Dr. Jason Luoma. He is a clinical psychologist, the CEO of Portland Psychotherapy Clinic Research and Training Center in Portland, Oregon. Uh, this center is a social enterprise that generates revenue to support substantial research activities. Um, his research has focused in shame, self-stigma, connection, and the application of acceptance and commitment therapy, and you would guess it's psychedelic-assisted therapy as an intervention for shame and increasing self-compassion. He is currently a principal investigator on two clinical trials related to psychedelics, including a trial of MDMA, assisted therapy for social anxiety disorder. He is an international recognized trainer in ACT, that's acceptance and commitment therapy, former chair of the ACT training committee and past president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences. Um, he has over 80 publications, including co-authoring two books, Learning, Accept Learning, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, and Values in Therapy. Jason, welcome to the show. We also have Dr. Brian Poletki. He is a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders, um, OCD, generalized anxiety, social anxiety, panic disorder, trauma, and PTSD, and matters related to the use of psychedelics. He completed a postdoctor fellowship at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University and practices from an orientation based in acceptance and commitment therapy. He is an active researcher and has published on topics such as anxiety disorders, mindfulness, psychedelics, and the relationship between theory and practice in psychotherapy. Um, at the Port Portland Psychotherapy, so they work at the same uh, center together. Brian is also involved in research in the use of psychedelics for the treatment of mental health problems. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's let's jump right in. Um, I know this is going to be a very t-ball uh, question to start with, 
But I think we should just start with the basics of what are psychedelics? Yeah, so psychedelics are substances or drugs that produce an altered state of consciousness. Uh, sometimes when that term is used, we can we can think of it in its broadest sense, where it might refer to um, any kind of substance that produces like a change in consciousness. They're the classical psychedelics, which is what most people think of when they think of psychedelics, which include LSD, psilocybin, DMT, mescaline. Uh, these are substances that work kind of in the same family on serotonergic pathways. Um, but again, uh, psychedelics often are used, uh, that, that term is used as an umbrella term, and it includes other substances that have psychedelic-like effects, such as MDMA or ketamine. And what what would make a psychedelic different than like, because an opioid causes an altered state of mind, right? Or marijuana, or I could keep alcohol. Um, Why is psychedelics different? How are they different? I always find this a really hard question to, to answer because it's sort of like describing what it's like to be drunk or high to somebody who's never done it before, right? Uh, we can try. There's definitely words we can use to to, to try to describe it. Um, it you know, psych- psychedelics produce changes to perception, uh, changes to sense of self, um, a distorted sense of time. Uh, so people could have experiences where they feel outside of time. Um, they feel that their their sense of self is is altered, sometimes quite dramatically, where they don't have kind of a connection to their physical body any longer um and uh you know changes to visual auditory perception things like um you know seeing uh seeing sounds or you know hearing colors um that kind of that kind of thing so it's it's hard to describe but um i don't know jason if you would add anything to that i think i think that's a great question about how it can be hard to describe exactly where the edges are and I think another element and phenomenologically would be that psychedelics do tend to produce more profound changes in perception than I would say, you know, alcohol usually would like with alcohol, you're not likely to see colors or shapes, you know, or you're not likely to um, experience maybe your body in such a profoundly different way. Um, Most other drugs, I would say the alterations to perception tend to be quite more, much more limited. Um, and then I think the other thing is that if we're talking about the classic psychedelics, they're often defined by um, a lot of action on the 5T uh, 2A uh, receptor, serotonin receptor, uh, HT2A receptor. So that would be another way that sometimes people will classify psychedelics. MDMA also shares that quality. But it's tricky because there are also drugs that are often called psychedelics that aren't that like ketamine or even things like salvinorin or there's a, there's a whole range of things. So it's, it's kind of, it's kind of messy to exactly find what the edge of what a psychedelic is. Mm, um, uh, I'm assuming cause it's related to therapy. Like the chain, maybe when people think of like their perception of things, we're thinking about like visuals the five senses, but I'm assuming as uh, these drugs have a profound effect on how you're viewing your internal experience and your understanding of your relationships with people and the world. And it, 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 it in some capacity shifts the way that, that you're, you're relating with your core beliefs and concepts. Very much can it, in, and uh, you know, the effects of psychedelics are very dose dependent. 
which is important to keep in mind. And that at lower doses, you're going to have lesser effects, but at high doses or moderate to high doses, you're much more likely to have much more extreme changes in consciousness to the point of feeling like you're encountering entities that, um, you know, don't necessarily exist in any consensus sort of reality or experiencing a complete sense of loss of self or strong shifts in your sense of self, um, seeing yourself in ways that you maybe have never experienced before, maybe perceiving yourself with a level of, of love in a way that you've never had or experiencing a sense of your um, self dropping away and feeling a unity with the universe and a sense of interconnection that is often hard to achieve outside of maybe more extreme um, religious practices like very long-term meditation or intense uh, ceremonial practices. Um, you know, I think many people and cultures over the you know dec the, the centuries millennia have prized psychedelics for allowing people to access states of consciousness and experiences that are that are very human and accessible without psychedelics but are a lot easier to access with psychedelics and so um, you know they they've had a lot, they've been used very much in embedded in cultures for many years and I think part of what's different is that the the West, uh, you know, we might refer to as West, uh, the West has largely lost contact with psychedelic substances and their use culturally, um, you know, whereas many other cultures have maintained that use uh, over time. Mm. Um, do you think that's because of like the legal landscape in the, you know, like the war on drugs and um, I was going to say a time period, but I actually don't know the exact time period of when this Started sometime after been around 1950s. I'm assuming, like, is that kind of where Americans dipped off of this? It's it's a good question. I mean, I, I, maybe you can say more, Brian. But I think part of it would also be. I'm speculating here because I'm actually not that aware of this. But my sense would be that this probably a lot of this is the influence of the world's major religions mm. and their attitudes towards uh, substance use, and so I think a lot of those practices probably dropped off when Christianity and subsequent religions became dominant and basically uh, oppressed, you know, practices, which led to um, more ex direct experiences with the transcendent. You know, these religions wanted to sort of keep control over access to God or like the experience of transcendence. They wanted to limit it and kind of manage it. And so substances that result in, in you know people having ex experiences of transcendence or spiritual experiences would have been threatening. And so I think they were oppressed many millennia ago in like European contexts, for example. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, Brian, go I was going to say, yeah, the, and and they you know they entered the scene in the U.S. Uh, uh, and and Europe and with the discovery of LSD in 1938 and that kind of ushered in this first you know um in, uh, wave of interest in the in the 60s you know there was a considerable amount of research it was a it was a, a real movement within psychiatry you know the belief was that psychedelics could do for the mind um 
what the telescope did for astronomy or what the microscope did for biology. Uh, there was over uh, a thousand papers on psychedelic assisted therapy, uh, somewhere around 40,000 patients treated with LSD therapy and psilocybin therapy. So it wasn't just a, a small fringe thing. It was a, a real significant movement. And of course, all that did um, stop in uh, 1970 with the scheduling, uh, you know, the scheduling of psychedelics as having no medical value. And so that, that kind of began this period um, in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s where there, there really wasn't much happening. Hmm. Okay, good. I'm glad that you got the correct time period out there because I was like, I know it's somewhere <laughs> between 1950 and 1980. I just don't know exactly where to put my finger on it. Um, all right. And then when, when it comes so that that's like psychedelics more, more broadly, but when we're looking at using psychedelics for treatment, are there certain psychedelics that we're thinking are more useful and why are we thinking that they're more useful? I yeah, I think, I guess I would say that it's less about having a sense that certain psychedelics are more useful, perhaps, than that certain psychedelics are more convenient. Mm. And so there are many different psychedelics, and perhaps there are some that are, there probably are some that are more useful than others or more likely to be helpful. Um, some are notorious for how just difficult they are. Um, but of a lot of the common ones, it seems like they have they often have pretty similar effects, but there are big differences in duration. And so, um, for example, LSD and psilocybin have pretty similar effects when you do studies comparing the, them phenomenologically. The people have a very very hard time distinguishing between the two. But um, psilocybin typically is, if you're at a moderate dose, is resolved after about six hours. And LSD is going to be more in the eight to 10 hour range. And so uh, psilocybin has probably part of why it's being used a lot in the trials is because just for pragmatic reasons, what therapist wants to work a 10 hour workday. And so uh, even if LSD might be just as effective, it's not going to pragmatically work in our, in our culture. Um, same thing with mescaline. It's a longer acting one that's more in the 10 to 14 hour range. Again, it's just not pragmatic. And so that even if it was potentially similarly helpful, it's harder to, um, it's harder to justify. And so there's been, there's been a lot less research, for example, on, um, something like mescaline or, uh, there's another drug, there's another dissociative type psychedelic called Ibogaine that la can last anywhere from a day to multiple days. Um, and again, it's, it's getting some research attention, but has had less um, partially because it, one is it's dangerous. It can cause heart attacks. Um, but the second I think is also that it's um, extremely long acting and, and grueling Um uh, and so uh, it's it's a harder it's a harder it's a harder experience usually. Yeah, that one I haven't heard of ayahuasca. I don't know if that falls in the maybe here. I, I mean, it's a very hot experience now going to a shaman experience. Yeah, and ayahuasca has a shorter has a shorter uh, mechanism of action, a shorter half life in the body. Um, it's it's a and then DMT, DMT and uh, the reason why it go, it's 
three to six hours or so for ayahuasca typically. And um, it, 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 it's a, ayahuasca is, you know, typically embedded in these kind of more cultural contexts and in these group contexts, but we could talk, we could talk about that at length if you wanted. <laughs> huh. That could be a whole nother episode. It sounds yeah. like, um, all right. So it, it, um, it sounds like the traditional ones that are being used now in the research are psilocybin, which is found in shrooms, magic mushrooms, MDMA, which I, that's ecstasy, right? Or they might call Molly, or I'm not sure the exact slang these days. That's right. Well, not these days, but yeah. Um, and then you have ketamine, um, and then anything else that I'm missing that's being typically used now that they're bringing back like pioneering and frontiering psychedelic treatments? I think those are the, you know, the, the I would say the psilocybin and MDMA are, are probably going to be the first um, FDA approved treatments when that, when, whenever that happens. Um, I think as uh, you know, in the last few years, we've, we've seen a real increase in other interest in other compounds. So for example, 5-MeO-DMT, which is a very short acting and powerful psychedelic, um, is being investigated for the uh, treatment of depression. Um, but those, you know, there's less, less attention given to that. Whereas, you know, I think if you type in psilocybin in clinicaltrials.gov, there's there's well over 100 studies being conducted right now on psilocybin for a wide variety of mental health and and some medical conditions as well. Things like um, migraines, um, cluster headaches uh, and other conditions. Hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm a big uh, Beatles fan uh, and John Lennon, when he got interviewed tonight, this is not an exact quote, but he basically said, when I take psychedelics, I have more good days um, than not. And one of you two might know the exact quote when he got interviewed by the news about why he was, you know, using so much. Um, what, what's the difference between someone just taking a high dose of shrooms on their own and listening to music in their house or going through a nature walk and doing psychedelic assisted therapy? Like why add the therapy part to it? So one thing about psychedelics and their effects that, that we didn't mention is that they're highly dependent on the environment, uh, what's been called the set and setting, the mindset, um, your attitude, your kind of psychological state going into an experience, as well as what's happening around you. So, you know, doing mushrooms on a hike out in nature versus in a therapist's office with eye shades and headphones, which are typically used, um, are gonna be very different experiences. And uh, the, the model that's emerged in terms of psychedelic assisted therapy uh, is, is really meant for, it's like one particular way of using psychedelics. And I always like to say that it's not the right way or the best way, it's just one way. And in terms of a therapy model, uh, it might not even be the best way. Like we're still really learning about how to complement the psychedelic experience with therapeutic support. Um, but, you know, using that altered state of consciousness embedded within a therapeutic relationship or a course of treatment is what, you know, in terms of uh, the therapy aspect, what we're interested in. Um, I always love when somebody's willing to admit, like, we don't know. 
right? Like, like, you know, it's like a very like, yeah, we, we think that doing the therapy with it is helpful, but we just don't know yet. Um, and it sounds like you guys are very much researching to that effect. I think it's pretty clear that it's important to do therapy with it, or at least some sort of supportive context that, that helps people through it and prepare for it and to utilize whatever happens. I think that's quite clear. But what's less clear is what formats, what, what to do in that structure. That's the thing that's gotten very little research. And, you know, one of the things we're really interested in is, you know, coming, being ABCT members and having this background in evidence-based approaches, we're, we're really trying to consider how to use more evidence-based approaches in the context of psychedelics, because a lot of the psychotherapy that's paired with psychedelics tends to come out of traditions that are kind of less interested in science or uh, less interested in empirical evaluation of how well they work or how they work. And so um, we, we, we want to see if you, perhaps you can maximize the gains by uh, having elements of your psychotherapy that has you know, been contextualized to psychedelics and um, makes use of the, the experience of psychedelics, but also brings in principles that we know work based on you know, decades of research. And so that's what we're really trying to do. And, but we, you know, the research itself to date has really can't say much about what psychotherapy approaches when paired with psychedelics work better than others because no one has studied that there's not been even one study where they compared the same psychedelic with this psychotherapy and this you know versus this psychotherapy or even this level of psychotherapy like a high level and a low level that that even hasn't been done so we're in terms of trying to understand the the social context of psychedelic use and what's going to maximize the benefits we're so early days on that. We know very, very little from from a research standpoint on on how to do that. that we're basically just dependent on you know clinical lore and um, experience, which are all good and informative, but uh, missing that scientific lens for it. Um, but there has been research, like on on the combination of the use, even if it's not that like nitty gritty yet. And and what is the research? actually showing when we're combining the two sure yeah oh, go ahead uh, the, the the model that's emerged is using um some sessions to prepare people for a psychedelic experience so that's often called the preparation phase um that's kind of informing people about like what what to expect um what they should do um and you, you know, kind of help them prepare for the range of experiences that could happen. Um, and then there is the being present with them during the experience, which is really important. Um, often what's been used mostly in, in the research is what's been called a non-directive approach where the therapists are more there to create a safe and supportive container for the experience to unfold. And the idea is that the experience itself is kind of the the star or the center of action. We're not doing therapy in those those sessions as much. It's a little different with MDMA, I think, um, versus the classical psychedelics like psilocybin. Um, but we're kind of allowing this experience to unfold and, and seeing what comes up for the for the client or the participant. 
And then there's the integration phase, which is the therapy that comes afterwards. And that involves helping uh, make meaning and um, process the experience and kind of carry forth learning that might have occurred in the session um, into daily life. And so most research has some degree of that. Um, you know, I think there's some some uh, uh, research that is in, in more invested in uh you're treating this more like as a traditional drug where the therapy part isn't as valued as much. But I think for the most part, there is pretty strong consensus that the therapeutic element is really essential. Um, so it's, it's not just the drug itself that has the effects. It's the drug and the therapy combination. And I think that's a part that a lot of people miss because the drugs tend to get a lot of attention. They're, they're kind of more fun. They're more, you know, they're, they're, they're more interesting in some ways. But we, you know, I really want to emphasize the importance of the therapeutic relationship. Um, you said integration after. Do you mean immediately after? Or do you mean like the next couple of sessions? Uh, what, is, what does that mean? After? Yeah, typically we meet, uh, the, the therapist would meet with the participant usually the next day, the next morning. Um, and then, you know, sometime after that, you know, maybe the, the next week and then, um, you know, uh, the spacing of that it still can vary quite widely there, but there is kind of a, a norm of, of trying to meet with the person kind of as soon as possible, um, just to sort of help them start to begin the process of, um, you know, making sense of the experience. And, you know, sometimes psychedelics can stir things up. In fact, that's why we want to use them. They, they can be disruptive. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in terms of who they might be best for, um, think about clients who are stuck in things like, you know, worry or rumination or obsessions or addictions or behaviors that are kind of like intractable. They've tried things before and they're still stuck in these behaviors. And so psychedelics can shake things up. And so sometimes the integration process involves taking care of someone in that kind of shaken up state. There might be a little bit raw. They might have had some, you know, some trauma memories come up or they might have had some uh, difficulties in the experience. And uh, what we see in the, the the context of having the support of the therapists in the trials is that uh, if there are challenges, they're typically associated with some therapeutic process of growth and development. Whereas, you know, in uncontrolled settings, when people use psychedelics on their own, Sometimes the challenges there are more associated associated with the environment and something something happening that then scares the person and uh, you're very sensitive and vulnerable in an altered state of consciousness with psychedelics. So if you're out and, and something goes wrong, someone knocks at the door that you weren't expecting, that could really impact the experience. Um, but in the in the context of the trials, there are sometimes challenges that come up, and the integration phase can be helpful in. Um, helping folks like work through that. Okay. So we are um, having them come in. We're orienting them to what the psychedelic experience is going to be like and how to use it um, to be therapeutic. <clears throat> we then put them in a setting where it's going to help them turn more inwards um, than outwards and make sure that there's no, um, well, hope that there's no startle response that's coming from something that's not going to be helpful, but rather from, an internal experience. We have them go through that. We help them feel comfortable. Um, we we um, 
helped them through some of maybe the tough negative emotions that they're going through. And any evidence-based practitioner knows we need to go through the emotions. You can't go around them in order, in order to get better. And it sounds like psychedelics very much can push you through that direction. And then afterwards, you help them process the experience, the learning, and couch it in evidence-based um, conceptualization so to funnel the learning to be more therapeutic. Am I getting that right or am I off somewhere in the process? I think that was great, except the last part. I mean, I think most therapists wouldn't necessarily use evidence-based methods to try to make use of whatever happened in the psychedelic session. But, mm. um, but, but, but yes, we would, we would prefer that. And, um, the other thing I would add is that, and then it's often the case in, in many of these studies that you might then have another medicine session, another dosing session followed by additional, you know, non, non psychedelic, you know, talk therapy after that to integrate that. So some of the studies will have one medicine session, some will have two, and some will even have three, depending on the study. Um, but I don't know that there's any that have more than three that I know of that are at least the randomized trials. So it's a series, it's often a series of, of sessions. And there is some, there is some evidence that multiple psychedelic sessions can be are probably better often, or you know, over, on the average, you you get additional benefit from benefit from additional um, psychedelic medicine sessions. So that would be the other the other piece that I would add. Um, you said multiple um, kind of trips in the, in the treatment. Is it? I, I looking outside of the research. Is, is it the same drug three times, or is it that they're doing shrooms, then they're doing Molly, and then they're doing ketamine, or in, in, are they doing them all at once? Like, what's the in the research? It's pretty much always just one. It's hard enough to get a study with a Schedule One substance through the FDA, <laughs> and to have to have, try to have a study with two Schedule One substances in it. Um, or two experimental studies or subjects, uh, substances, let's say if they were, if it was a novel compound or something that some pharma company was producing, uh, FDA, I don't think is at that point yet that they're going to, they're going to let you do a study with two drugs in it. But, um, when you talk about the, what's called the underground, which is there are, you know, there are probably thousands of practitioners in the United States who are operating in what's typically called the psychedelic underground. And these are people who um, have varying levels of competence and training, um, but they provide psychedelic services, uh, you know, more or less in a therapeutic sort of container, depending upon the person. And in that context of this, you know, illegal um, practice context, um, largely illegal, I guess it depends upon the state. And this, there are a lot of gray areas around this, but for those underground practitioners, um, many of them will use different things. They will, they will sequence different substances or combine substances with people. Um, and that that's common. Uh, there's all kinds of lore about what to use when, and all kinds of ideas about those things that are, that are there in, in kind of a psychedelic culture. Um, but, in terms of things that are are researched, it's it's much more careful. And um, and I think the other thing to keep in mind, which is something we haven't really talked about yet, is that in these drugs, 
when they're used at the higher doses, they are very powerful and, um, and that in the clinical trials, the samples that have been uh, of participants are very, very highly screened. They're highly screened for good health. They're very, you know, that they're going to not be disruptive in the trials, that they often have a limited number of comorbid diagnoses. And so in our research context, these samples to date are generally pretty refined, kind of um, very highly screened samples. And so we, we do want to just make sure that people uh, know that this, these are while most of these compounds are quite physiologically safe, at least the classic psychedelics are quite physiologically safe. It's hard to, it's hard to take enough to kill you physically for the classic psychedelics. Psychologically, they can be very powerful and um, they can lead to a lot of harm if not used in the right context. And there are probably some people who maybe shouldn't be using them as well. And so this isn't like, I guess you, you talked about the difference between say, psychedelics and other drugs, you're probably in general, like most, there aren't probably too many people are going to be harmed by like, say one night having alcohol, but I mean, obviously there's a few, there are some people, but you know, or one night having caffeine, but one night having psychedelics, if it's in the wrong context and the wrong person, like that can cause some serious harm. Cause these are, these are powerful, very psychologically powerful substances. Um, and so that's also part of why the therapeutic context, if we're situating it in a, in a therapy context is very important, but also we, we do want to acknowledge that there have been, there are these cultures and traditions around psychedelics that have been around for a long time that have been able to use psychedelics safely and, um, in ways that are helpful and valued inside their cultures, whether we're talking about um, uh, like indigenous cultures that have been using, you know, psychedelics in the Americas for a long, long time, or whether we're talking about um, other, you know, groups that are newer cultural groups, like, um, you know, churches that are psilocybin churches that are springing up or various other groups that um, also teach people and support people on how to use psychedelics safely. But the main message being that these are powerful drugs and that you do need to be cautious and you need to know what you're doing and you need to have the right support um, if you're thinking about getting involved with this stuff. And, uh, you know, we're coming at this from this therapeutic angle, but it's really only one angle that can be brought to um, engaging with these with these substances. Um, well, uh, it's sounding like maybe uh, the psychedelic underground could be a bit of the wild, wild west where there's some people that are doing it in, in reasonable ways, but there's the chance of harm doing it unreasonable ways. But let's take a pause here. Um, we're going to be right back. I, we're going to talk more about high doses and some risks that, that could be done with psychedelics if it's not done under the care of people that know what they're doing. 